reading for this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 22, and we'll be reading the whole uh, 25 verses. And it's found in, on page 734 in your pew Bible. So Isaiah chapter 22, verse 1. An oracle concerning the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs, O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry? Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They have been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trembling and terror in the valley of vision, a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quaver with her charioteers and horses. Kerr uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots, and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The defences of Judah are stripped away. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defences. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to will, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go, say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace, what are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock? Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hold you away, O you mighty men. He will roll you tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die and there your splendid chariots will remain you disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. In that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. 
What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the pack driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. This is God's word. Thank you, Mui, for uh, reading that passage. Um, my name's Ian. I'm one of the elders here, and um, I'm speaking here this morning because John's asked me to speak while um, he's on study leave. Um, and it's a big chapter, and we need God's help, so let's pray and ask him to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word uh, that is relevant today to us, that speaks to us today, and we pray that you would help us each to listen to what you are saying to us through your word. We pray that you would help us to respond with glad and obedient hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you, if you've ever done something thinking that everything is going to be fine, but actually things have turned out disastrously. And when you look back, you realised that what you were doing was always going to be a disaster. Well, maybe that's never happened to you. So let me give you an example of what I mean. About 10 years ago, one of my children uh, was throwing a ball against a wall and he was at home thinking, what could possibly go wrong? The only problem was that the wall was made out of railway sleepers and in the railway sleepers there was a nest of European wasps and the, the unnamed child uh, knew that the wasps were there and it should have been obvious that it wasn't going to take very long before the wasps became very angry, and that happened. They became angry, and there was some stinging from angry wasps. The child was oblivious to the obvious. But it's not just adults or individuals who can be oblivious to the obvious. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the whole Roman city of Pompeii were happily going about, living their pagan lives, thinking, what could possibly go wrong? Their problem was that they were living near a, an, an active, rumbling volcano and history tells us that the city was completely destroyed when the volcano erupted. These people were oblivious to the obvious. And the effects on an individual of being stung by a wasp or are very painful and the effects on a whole city from an erupting volcano is absolutely devastating. But what are the effects for a world that is oblivious to the obvious. What happens when the world is oblivious to God himself? And today, we're going to hear what happens when people are oblivious, who refuse to turn to God and live for this world. And it would be good if you keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 22, because we're going to work our way through the whole chapter. And the first thing that you'll notice in verse 1, if this is an oracle or a prophecy concerning the Valley of Vision. And this is referring to Jerusalem. And it's not really clear why Jerusalem is called the Valley of Vision. But what's strange is about this title is that the people of Jerusalem have a complete lack 
of vision. It's quite clear that they're oblivious to the obvious. They're blind to what is clear. And we're going to see three signs that they were oblivious to the obvious. And the first sign that we see is that the people were living for fun instead of living in fear. And we can see that from verse 1. Isaiah says to the people of Jerusalem, how is it possible that you're having fun? What's the matter with you? That you've gone up onto your rooftops and you're celebrating. And Isaiah asks them in verse 1, what troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs, you town so full of commotion, you city of tumult and revelry? What's going on here? What's wrong with having a good time and enjoying life? Is Isaiah just being a killjoy? The problem isn't they're just having fun. The problem is that they're living only for fun. And what we read next is what happened when they lived for fun instead of living in fear of God, completely oblivious to the obvious. Let's read verses 2 and 3 and notice it's written in the past tense as though it's already happened. But Isaiah is actually talking about future events. Remember, he's a prophet. Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They've been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. And maybe we get an idea why the people have turned away from God when we see what the leadership looks like here. They seem to have been the first ones who abandoned ship, not even putting up a fight. How would you react to this kind of news? Your people are going to be killed. Some of them are going to be captured. Your city's going to be destroyed. I don't know about you, but Isaiah's reaction is overwhelming grief. Despite how they're living, he still loves them because he's one of them. And these are God's people. He's overcome with grief, but he doesn't want their comfort because they're so out of touch with what's going to happen. They're oblivious to the obvious. Isaiah mourns for his people because he knows about the coming destruction and it's going to be absolutely terrifying. Look at verse 4. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. Can you see the contrast between the Israelites and Isaiah? The picture here is of the Israelites partying hard on their rooftops, thinking everything's okay, completely aware of God's coming judgment, while Isaiah is heartbroken for his people. And that's because he can see what they can't. Isaiah knows that the people of Jerusalem are more interested in having fun than fearing God. They're living just like all the surrounding nations. In the previous chapters leading up to this one, Isaiah's been saying that God is going to judge the nations surrounding Jerusalem. First, it was Babylon, then Philistine, then Moab, then Damascus, then Cush, then Egypt, and now Jerusalem, smack back in the middle of that map that's just gone off. Can we see that this is God speaking to us today? Are we like the people of Jerusalem thinking, what could possibly go wrong? And this is a clear warning to people today in the church who think they can live on their rooftops like everyone else in society, having fun 
without any fear of a holy God. Having fun instead of fearing God was the first sign that they were oblivious to the obvious. The next sign was the people were turning to things instead of turning to God. Isaiah says that Jerusalem will come under attack from their enemies. And you'll notice that it's God, the one who's in charge of a heavenly army. He's the one who has determined the day this is going to happen. And when that day comes, will they turn to God? No, they cry out to the mountains if somehow the mountains could save them. Read what it says in verse 5. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror. In the valley of vision, a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Can you imagine how terrifying this is going to be? A day of chaos and confusion and death. They're going to look over the walls of their city and see their enemies waiting there at the gates with all their weapons pointing right at them. They look out and they see their best fields full of enemy horses and chariots just waiting for the right time to invade and attack. They're completely exposed. Look at verse 6. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kerr uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The Lord stripped away the defences of Judah. They've tried calling out to the mountains. That obviously didn't work. So now they turn, where do they turn next? Do they turn to God now? No. They turn to their weapons, they turn to their wall, and they turn to their water supply. Firstly, they turn to their weapons, storeroom called the Palace of the Forest, to see what they've got. They might be able to defend themselves. Next, they turn to these massive walls which surrounded Jerusalem, which needed some repairs. Hopefully these would be able to keep their enemies out. And finally, they turn to their water source, make sure it's secure. They might be able to survive if they come under siege. In this crisis, they turn to anything and everything except God himself. Look at it says what they do in verse 8. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down the houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. While the people of Jerusalem are in crisis, you'd have to admit they've got some pretty impressive resources, haven't they, to protect them. A few years ago, I was at the uh, Belgrave Heights Men's Convention and Andrew Scipioni, he's the police commissioner from New South Wales at that time, he shared an amazing story about something that happened during that awful siege at the, the Lint Cafe in Sydney. And, and when the police commissioner and the Premier of New South Wales got together to try to work out what was the best thing to do, what do you think the first thing they did was? This police commissioner, he's in charge of 16,000 police officers and all sorts of special squads and helicopters and dogs. They're all at his disposal. What did they do? They prayed. A police commissioner and a state premier, with all their power and resources, they turned to the same God that the people of Jerusalem refused to turn to. Look what it says in verse 11. But you did not look to the one who made it, or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. 
And surely this is the most serious accusation that could be made against any one of us. Whether life is going well or you're in a time of crisis, this is what separates us from God. This is our biggest problem. And it's not a physical problem that can be fixed by turning to physical things. It's a spiritual problem that can only be fixed by turning to God. They're having fun instead of fearing God. They're turning to things instead of turning to God. And the third sign that they're oblivious to the obvious is that they're revelling instead of repenting. The people of Jerusalem soon come to realise the situation is completely hopeless and their enemy has a much more powerful army. Do you think they might just turn to God now? What would you do in a situation like this? If you were that kid throwing the ball at the, uh, at the wall and you stirred up those angry wasps and now you are surrounded by those angry wasps, would you keep throwing the ball at the wall thinking, oh, well, there's nothing much else I can do. I might as well enjoy this as much as I can for as long as I can. Or would you be sorry that you'd done such a foolish thing? Let's read verse 12 and listen to what God wanted them to do. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. Can you see how foolish these people are? They should be repenting over how they've turned away from God, but instead they're revelling. Again, can you see the contrast of what God wants them to do and what they actually do? God wants them to weep and wail, but they think this is it. Let's eat and drink our very best food and wine. Even now, they're still oblivious to the obvious. Look at their revelling in verse 13. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. Isn't that what we see today all around us? People who want only comfortable, happy, fun, pain-free lives, thinking this is all there is, going from one experience to the next. Isn't that what our society looks like for so many people? And for those who live like that, who are oblivious to the obvious, who think they're not in any way accountable to God, who are too busy revelling instead of repenting, there'll be a day when it's going to be too late to turn to God. Look what Isaiah says in verse 14. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. God has clearly told Isaiah, there's no rescue plan. There's no hope for those who continue in revelry rather than repent. This is serious. It's a terrifying judgment for those who are oblivious to the obvious. When God is your enemy, there is no hope. And so far in this chapter, Isaiah's painted a sad picture of what Jerusalem looks like. A city living for fun instead of fearing God, a city turning to things instead of turning to God, a city more interested in revelling instead of repenting. And now as we move to the next part of the chapter, Isaiah, he introduces us to two of Israel's leader and he says what's going to happen to them. The first one is a bad example. The second one, a good example. And the first individual Isaiah tells us about is Shebna. And he's an example of what Jerusalem had become. One of the commentators says he was individually what the nation was 
collectively. Isaiah is saying that Shebna is typical of what Jerusalem would look like. And sometimes we might describe a person as a typical Australian. And maybe 30 years ago, that was Crocodile Dundee, you know, Paul Hogan. Maybe today it's Hugh Jackman or Nicole Kidman. In fact, it's pretty hard to find someone who really personifies what an Australian is these days. But this man, Shebna, he truly personifies what the people of Jerusalem were like. He's just like them. He's oblivious to the obvious. Look at him and notice three things. He's a man obsessed with his own power. He doesn't need anyone's permission to do anything. He's obsessed with his own permanence. He's planning a tomb fit for a king so that people will take notice when he's gone. And he's obsessed with his own prominence. The tomb that he's getting built, it has to be on a high place where everyone can see it. But listen to what God tells Isaiah to Ashebna in verse 16. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, Go say to this steward, to Shebna, the palace administrator, What are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiselling your resting place in the rock? Just like the people of Jerusalem, who'd become oblivious to God, who had turned to things instead of turning to God, Shebna was also about to face the same judgment that Jerusalem would face. He wasn't going to experience glory. He was going to be disgraced. He wasn't even going to die in the land. He was having his elaborate tomb made. Look at verse 17. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die and the chariots you are so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from office and you'll be ousted from your position. God deals with Shebna in a terrifying way. This mighty man who's so proud of all his achievements is totally oblivious that God's going to remove him from power, just like you might throw a ball as hard and as far as you can. God is going to throw him out of power and into the hands of his enemies. It sounds a bit like what happens to Australian prime ministers from their political parties, doesn't it? He thinks he's a powerful ruler, but he's oblivious to the obvious. God's the one who gave him his position of power, and it's God who takes it away. And with bad leaders like this, the situation must have looked completely hopeless. But we'll see that God raises up a good leader for his people in Shebna's place. We've seen that Shebna was an example of what Jerusalem would become, the kind of leader that you should never put your trust in. But next, we see what that Eliakim's a very different kind of leader, an example of a leader they could trust. Again, you'll notice that God's the one who raises up Eliakim, a man who is everything that Shebna isn't. Shebna was only interested in himself, but Eliakim, he cares for his people like a good father. Shebna was shameful. Eliakim was honoured. Shebna would be hurled away. Eliakim would be like a peg in a firm place, someone you could trust. Look at verses 20 onwards. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. 
He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. That's an important phrase and we're going to reflect on that in a moment. And what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. And and take note of that too. We're going to come back to that. He'll become a seat of honour for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. Eliakim's going to be given tremendous authority over Jerusalem. And that's what it means when it says that God's going to place the, the key to the house of David on his shoulders. He's someone who will carry the burdens of his people. And, and from what we read next, eventually this load on Eliakim, it's going to be something that he wouldn't be able to bear. Look at our final verse, verse 25. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. And looking back, we don't know exactly what happened to Eliakim, but he wasn't able to bear the load that was placed on him. He's an example of a good leader, but ultimately, whatever that load was, he couldn't bear it. And when you think about it, what do you think that's, it's talking about? What, what's Isaiah pointing towards? I know that Isaiah 22 looks like a, a pretty depressing chapter with all this judgment. But right through Isaiah, there are glimmers of hope. And can you see that the hope that Isaiah is pointing us to here in chapter 22? And we can see that hope when we think about Eliakim. You see, God is going to send us a better Eliakim. Eliakim would be given a lot of authority but there's someone who will be given all authority in heaven and on earth. Eliakim would be like a father to his people, but there's someone who really cares for us, way beyond that. Someone called the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. Eliakim would be an honoured leader, but there's someone who will be honoured by thousands of angels in heaven singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Eliakim would bear the load of his people, but there's someone who would come and bear a far greater load than Eliakim ever could, the load of our sin on his body, on the cross. Isaiah is pointing us to Jesus, the one who was cut off from his father for us. Jesus is the better Eliakim. And perhaps the biggest clue that Isaiah is pointing us to Jesus is in verse 22, where it says that Eliakim has the key to the house of David on his shoulder. The only other place in the Bible that mentions the key of David, it's found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, which is clearly speaking of Jesus. It says this, to the, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is the one who holds the key of David. He's the one who ultimately holds the keys to heaven and hell. Jesus is the true king over all things. 
And it's only by turning to Jesus, the one who bore the entire load of our sin in his body on the cross, that we can be forgiven. Forgiven for living for fun. Forgiving for turning to things other than him to save us. And if this is what we know about Jesus, how much more foolish would it be for us to be having fun instead of fearing God? For turning to things instead of turning to God? How much more foolish would it be for us to be revelling instead of repenting? And so before we finish today, I want to ask two questions that I think Isaiah is challenging us with today. And the first question is this. Are we living on our rooftops before the world? In Australia, isn't that what we see in our culture today? People who are living on their rooftops so that everyone can see that they're having a good time, that they're successful, that they don't have to worry about their future? Isn't the motto for so many Australians today, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Just take our obsession with food for an example. There was a study done a couple of years ago of 2,000 adults. It found that the average adult spends one hour and 37 minutes a week watching food-related shows. Another three and a half hours digesting food content on digital platforms every week. That consists of 44 minutes on Facebook, 20 minutes on Twitter, 19 minutes on Instagram and Pinterest and 34 minutes on YouTube. They also spend 58 minutes reading food websites and blogs, 15 minutes Snapchatting about food and 9 minutes browsing recipe books each week. The study doesn't even mention what we eat or how much we eat. But it's obvious, it's a national obsession. I don't have to say too much about our obsession with alcohol except to say that Australians spend $18 billion a year on alcohol. We are eating and drinking as a nation and we're completely oblivious to the obvious. What, what about our obsession with travel? Every Saturday morning, while I'm still in bed, I hear this big thud outside my house as pages and pages of glossy advertising material and articles about faraway places land on my driveway. This thing's strangely called a newspaper, but it's full of amazing pictures and places to see and go because that's what so many of us are investing in and living for. I was talking to someone this week who'd recently graduated from uni and they said before people have started their career, if they hadn't travelled, they had not experienced life. And isn't it easy for us to be drawn into that way of thinking? The same person told me about a, an older person in their church who would spend about six months a year going from one cruise to the next. How easy is it for us to just drift into the lifestyle of those around us? In our leafy eastern suburbs here in Melbourne, the expectations for so many of us is get a good education, get a good job, find a partner, have a family, buy a home, accumulate wealth, travel and die. And wouldn't it be easy just to slip into the lifestyle where those expectations become our expectations? Don't get me wrong, there's, there's nothing wrong with Jamie Oliver's latest recipe and eating a good meal or enjoying a holiday, but our culture says that we should live on our rooftops because this life is all there is. We're being told to invest all our time and everything we've got in this world. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, are we any different to those people back then that Isaiah was writing about? Have we become so oblivious that we've assimilated into the culture around us? Or has the culture infiltrated so much into our lives that there's no difference between us and our non-Christian family or neighbours or work colleagues? Have we just comfortably drifted into a lifestyle where we're just living for fun? Would God be grieving over how we're investing our time? Would God be grieving over how we're investing our income? Would God be grieving over how we're investing everything he's given us? Are we oblivious to the obvious that everything we have belongs to him and is for him and he'll call us to account for how we've been living? If you're here today and you realise you've been living on your rooftop, can I simply say turn to God in fear and repentance? He's an awesome God and he will judge his enemies. But his love is so amazing that he'll forgive those who trust in the one who bore our sins for us on the cross. The second question I want to ask today is this. Instead of living on our rooftops, are we living in the world before God? And for many of us here today, I'm sure that's what we're striving for. By God's grace, people here are living in this broken and sick world for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom in such a way that, in a sense, our life is on display, totally exposed, transparent and accountable to God uh, so that everyone can see that what we do in public is what we do in private. And isn't that wonderful when we hear of people living like this in the world before God for the sake of the gospel. I was so encouraged at church camp a few weeks ago to meet Warwick and Natalie Short and their family, to see and hear how their family now live in the middle of what looks like nowhere in the desert, just so they can tell people about Jesus. This was really challenging. And that's gospel living in the world before God. Some of us here might remember a, uh, a young woman called Priscilla Ruddle, and she was a member of this church, and she now lives in one of the poorest countries of the world. And if you look up Priscilla on the internet, Wikipedia says that she was captain of the Australian volleyball team at the 2000 Olympics. What it doesn't say is that she gave up a successful career in engineering, studied theology, learnt another language, and moved to another country to help with engineering and water projects and to serve in a local church. And when I read her newsletters and I hear her when she's back here in Australia, I'm so encouraged and inspired about what she's doing for the gospel. It's really amazing. But I'm also really encouraged by some of the things that are happening here in Surrey Hills and around Melbourne. I'm so encouraged that the Presbyterian Theological College in Melbourne here have young men and women who are being equipped so they can serve Jesus in various ministries. A lot of them have given up successful careers knowing that they might end up serving in a small, struggling church in Victoria. Hasn't it been wonderful in the last five years or so to have student ministers here who are working and willing to go into full-time paid ministry? And I'm really encouraged to hear that so many people in this church, they give up their holidays to go on gospel and beach missions just so they can tell people about Jesus. For so many people, holidays are all about us having fun and relaxing, living on the rooftop, 
But these people, they sleep in a tent or a church hall and eat camp food for a week or two because they want to let, they want to let people know that Jesus is the one to turn to. That's so wonderful, isn't it? And in recent years, we've had a number of people leave this church, their families, their friends, a good suburb, just so they can serve in a church that needs their help. That's what getting off our rooftops and living in the world looks like. And there are so many other ways I see people serving in the church, and that's so encouraging. But let me finish by reminding each one of us that God's not just calling us to get off our rooftops and live in a certain way. Yes, Stop living for fun. Stop turning to stuff when life gets tough. Stop reveling as if this world is all there is. But remember to turn in fear and repentance to the one who made you. Trust the one who will judge each one of us. Trust in the one who is the better Eliakim. If you trust this one, keep off your rooftops and keep living for the king. Let's pray.